Amen, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Uh, go ahead and get your Bibles out and turn to Exodus chapter 1. It's the second book of the Bible. Um, we'll be looking kind of through the first three chapters. We won't read the entire first three chapters, but we will kind of take a glance at what God is doing there. Uh, I want to welcome you to Redemption Church. Good morning again. I'm so excited that you're here. We had such a great day yesterday where we got to kind of live out a little bit what we believe God has called us to be about. We believe that, uh, that God has called us that we exist to redeem the, the church and the community with the gospel by making disciples. And we believe that we, <clears throat> we get to live that out individually each day as we love God, as we love his church, and as we love people. So yesterday we did that where we loved loud and we went out into our community. And, and so if you helped serve in love loud yesterday, could you please stand and just let us know. We want to see, don't be shy, go ahead and stand. Let us know who all was involved so we can see who got to be a part of that. Everybody else, give them a round of applause. That was awesome. There are even many that aren't here today. And so even last week before Love Loud, I wanted to applaud. I just wanted I just wanted I told her I would. She told me not to, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, I wanted to applaud Miss Joe House. Um, And here's why I want to do that. Everybody say, thank you, Joe. Joe, Uh, if you don't know this, and she's going to be mad at me for doing all this, but you'll forgive me later. She, she has just an immense amount of pain in her back at all times. Um, Surgery is no longer an option. There's electrical things going in her back to help her try to manage the pain. The reason I tell you all that is because here's what's really cool. is Monday morning, we did a breakfast for the teachers and the staff at Lakeshore Middle School. And Joe was right there with us early in the morning, standing in the midst of her pain uh, and serving these teachers and the staff. And so I just wanted to take a moment to say, Thank you for being willing to serve through that pain. And she was at Love Loud yesterday serving at the nursing home. And so thank you again, Joe, for your great example. <clears throat> we, get to, we get to do these things because even in the midst of our suffering and even in the midst of our pain, as we talked about last week, last week, uh, as we looked at the story of Joseph, we said that even in the midst of all this, meanwhile, God is at work, Right? So even in the midst of things that bother us, in the midst of things that are hard for us, meanwhile, God is at work. Today, as we look at the beginning of Exodus here, uh, and so beginning of Exodus, not Genesis, my bad. As we look at the beginning of Exodus here, we get to see what God has done in, in a mighty way uh, in the beginning of the story as we continue. And kind of what that meanwhile God is at work looks like as we continue in Exodus. And so grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 2 starting in verse 1 through 15, and then we're going to skip ahead to chapter 3 of Exodus and go to 13 through 20. Uh, And so go ahead and stand with your copy of God's Word. Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son... And when she saw that he, had a, that he was a fine child, she, ha- she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, 
and she and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and one of his people. He looked this way and that, seeing no one. He struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went on out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now let's fast forward to chapter 3, verses 13 through 20. And then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, or the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word today, I pray that we not only observe your mighty hand, but that we stand in awe of it. Lord, that we would magnify through the reading and studying of your word your greatness. Or that you would begin to put on our hearts now how you have saved us to send us. You haven't saved us to just sit in pews. You you have saved us to be a light in the darkness. You have saved us to carry your love to others. You have saved us to be an instrument, a broken vessel for your use. 
that this story is about you and your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Meanwhile, God is at work. That's what we looked at all last week. And as we continue into this week, we get to really see how that fleshes out in, in more than just this vague idea, but into the specifics that, that not only is this, there's this meanwhile that God is at work, but, but I want you to understand that meanwhile in your life, in your life, with every part of your story, like the dark parts of your story, the bad parts, the hurtful parts, the painful parts, the good parts, the, the education, the experiences, the things that you've been through, all of those are being used to send you. All of those are being used for God, submitted to God, for His glory and for His good. And, and, and the best thing we can pursue in life is for God to use us. And so I'm just going to remind you again that at the end of the service, during the invitation, I'm going to ask you to come forward. I'm going to ask you to get one of these cards. And on this card, I want you to write, if you don't have three names, that's okay. Surely you know one, right? Surely you know one. And, and you can start with that. And we're going to pray some strategic scripture over the loss. And we're going to commit to that. Well, Pastor, how long do you want me to commit to that? I don't know, until those people get saved. Right? I mean, until they get saved. This is not a gimmicky 20-day, 30-day, 40-day process. I, I'm just convinced that we've got to remember what we're about here. That we are to live sent because we've been saved. That we have been saved in order to be sent to others. And so this whole story is about God setting the stage. And as we look at the story of Moses, I couldn't help but think about um, someone else that got the nickname of Moses. Uh, Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was nicknamed Moses because of how many slaves she helped set free in the Underground Railroad. And um, her story is actually a pretty fascinating story of God setting the stage uh, in her entire life to use her uh, in a mighty way. She was a woman who loved God deeply, who uh, who was led by God uh, and, and her faithfulness in him to, to bring many people into freedom out of slavery. And I think there's some parallels in her story of why she ended up even giving him the nickname Moses that, that we can learn from as we look at this today. Um, <clears throat> our main idea, as we said earlier, is God is setting the stage in your life to save you, sanctify you, and to send you. God has been setting the story in everything we've been studying, all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Noah, Joshua, Jacob, the whole, I mean, Joseph, Jacob, Israel, the whole story, this whole thing has been setting up. As a matter of fact, the book of Exodus in Hebrew kind of begins with a word that means and. It's so just a continuation of Genesis. As a matter of fact, Genesis 1, 1 through 6 is really just a, uh, a, a recap of kind of the ending of Genesis. This is one of five books called the Pentateuch. Everybody say Pentateuch. You are all now seminary students and you know great theology. Pentateuch is a fancy word that just means five books, a book of five. Uh, and so this is the second book of five books. And so this is just a continuation of the story that we've looked at. Let's pick up in verse six, though, because I want you to see that even if, even if God seems absent, because the story really appears like God is absent in their lives, even if God seems absent, he is setting the stage for your redemption. And so we pick up in, in the suffering. We've seen the genealogy that Joseph had brought his family there. They ended up about 70 people there, but then they started to multiply quickly, starting in verse 6. <clears throat> and then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful 
and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel." The people of Israel had ended up in Egypt really as a source of salvation, right? So in Joseph's story, Joseph ends up in Israel and he interprets dreams for pharaohs and basically becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And in that, he develops this plan where after seven years of plenty, there will be seven years of famine and he sets up all of Egypt really to be okay. And, and so the land that became the source of their salvation really ended up becoming the source of their suffering many years later when when the the favor of man turns. See, here's the problem. When we lean just in on the favor of man, it always ends up coming up empty. Joseph did great things not only for the people of Israel, but for the land of Egypt. If it wasn't for Joseph's wisdom given to him by God, Egypt would have suffered greatly. But eventually that favor ran out as governments changed. When we lean in on the favor of man, it always ends up empty. And so we have to look to the sovereignty of God. But we realize in this story, the sovereignty of God is all over this thing. If you go back to Genesis 15, in Genesis 15, you'll see, we're not going to read it, but you go all the way back to Genesis 15, you see that God promises to, to Abraham that there will be 400 years in a land that isn't theirs, that this was all a part of God's plan. As, as Jacob was coming to visit his son in Egypt, he struggled with, should I really go to Egypt? And he asked God and God said, go to Egypt. God sent them there. When Joseph stood before his brothers after he revealed himself to them that it was him and they felt bad for selling him into slavery, he said, don't worry, God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. This was all in God's sovereign plan as he set the stage for the redemption of his people. And in your life, God is setting the stage for your salvation. If you're here and you're not a believer, I don't care what reasons you think you're here. I'm convinced God is setting the stage for your redemption. He's wooing you to him. It's it's, it's effectual calling is what we call it. He, He is bringing you to an affection of him. And I, I would say keep coming. And keep discussing and keep listening and let God work on your heart. Because meanwhile, God is at work. Now we look at this and it's easy for us to skim over this and miss what's really happening. 400 years. 400 years. These truths of God's sovereignty and goodness are easier for us to grasp from a distance. And so that's why we've got to study stories like this so we can see God's faithfulness and sovereignty. Um, When we go through difficult times, facts aren't enough to comfort us, right? Like if if you're going through a difficult time, if you just lost a loved one or gotten a difficult diagnosis or, or lost your job and I come to you or you get divorced and I come to you and I say, you know, God's got a plan. Is that true? 
Do you really care to hear it at that moment? No. And so I think this is why it's good for us to study. And I know this is why it's good for us to study stories like this so God can use these stories in our hearts where we can see God's faithfulness repetitively, his, his goodness in, in, in the midst of suffering, his sovereignty in the midst of these hard times so that when we go through difficult times, we can know this is the way that God has been doing things for a long time. And I've got to trust him that he has a plan. And we can find that in our hearts. And we can also know that it's okay to struggle. It's okay. It's okay to struggle but lean in on God in these times and be steadfast in the midst of suffering because God is setting the stage. God ends up saving Moses in the beginning of this story. God sets the stage of our salvation in our dependence on him. God never sets the stage for our salvation in our goodness, in what we bring to the table, but in our dependence on on him. The essence of what salvation is, is recognizing I'm not good enough. You, you've got you've to come to full grasp with reality that you are in full desperate need and dependence on God. That you have nothing to offer him to bring salvation to you. And this is where the Israelites find themselves. The Pharaoh has has gotten frustrated with how quickly the Israelite people are growing, and he wants to squash that, and so he develops a plan. And in his plan, first, he kind of turns the people against them, and then after he turns the people against them, he brings them under suffering and slavery. Then after that, he tries to do this kind of like quiet type deal. He tries to tell the midwives that when they're delivering the babies, just make it look like a stillborn, basically. Like, he's not saying... I want you to violently kill babies in front of their mothers. He's telling the midwives, as you deliver these children, like, I, I, I don't want the boys to live. But it's a fascinating story that happens in here. And we're not going to read it, but I want, you to, I want you to catch something fascinating that happens in, the, in this is the midwives fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And as a result, as a result, we end up getting to know their names, but we never hear Pharaoh's name. Pharaohs build, build pyramids and, and legacies so that their names would be known. But God in his sovereignty honors the midwives who refuse to follow this order rather than Pharaoh. And we see salvation come through their willingness to follow God and God blesses them. But then Pharaoh kind of ups the ante a little bit and he says... He tells everybody. He tried to do it subtly. He tried to do it quietly through the midwives. They delivered the babies, but they wouldn't comply. And so then he just, he quits being subtle. And he says, if you see a young Jewish baby boy, throw it in the river. Now, people obviously aren't going to voluntarily throw their children in a river. Which tells you, most likely, people were going house to house, door to door hunting down baby boys. Reminds me of a story that we find later in Matthew when Herod makes a decree against baby boys because he heard that a king of the Jews was rising up. And where does Joseph get a dream that he is to take Jesus to Egypt? It's part of this prophecy that even gets fulfilled and in, in prophesied in Hosea that, that out, of, out of Egypt he would call his son. Out of Egypt he would call his child. See, this is all foreshadowing. This is all shadow to the substance of the story of Christ that, that here he tries to oppress further and, and he says, throw him in the river. 
And so Moses' mom says, all right, I'll throw him in the river. Exodus 2, 1 through 6. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Have you ever you ever taken your kid out to eat? Like, do you remember parents who have kids that are older than three years old? Do you remember the day that your kid quit being a good restaurant kid? I remember distinctly the day my oldest quit being a good restaurant baby. See, Tripp was always a very well-behaved kid. For the most part, he still is. And and he was always like a really good kid to take to restaurants. And, and so we could take him and just give him something and he would be fine. And then we could have our conversations. And so me and my wife were in New Orleans and we wanted to go on a date. So we actually, history had told us that trip would cause no problems. And so we decided to go to a nice restaurant, a nice one. And we go to this I mean, white tablecloths and candle lights. And, and we thought it won't be a big deal. And so we go in, we order our food and Tripp's sitting at the edge of the table. We're having a great conversation. And then... Out of nowhere, Tripp grabs the salt shaker, hurls it behind his head as far as he can back into the restaurant. And then immediately he's grabbing, he he realized how amazingly fun that was. And he's immediately grabbing anything he can grab and just chunking it. And he ends up hitting this guy next to me that like was a scary looking dude. I mean, tattoos everywhere. Looked like he could kill people with his bare hands if he hadn't already. And so he gives me the evil eye. I immediately look at Audrey and I said, grab trip, go to the car. I'm either canceling the order or getting it to go and we're getting out of here. Imagine trying to hide a baby for three months in fear, in fear that they're going to kill your child. So Moses' mom hides him for three months, but she no longer can she hide him. Verse three, when she could hide him no longer, she took him for a she took for him a basket. That word for basket really in the King James actually translates it better ark. It's the same word used for Noah's ark. Uh, as a matter of fact, some of the only places this word is used in the Old Testament is in Noah's story and in this story. And she creates a little bitty Noah's ark to put this baby in, made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance. So she kind of followed him down the river to know what would be done to him. Charles Spurgeon here says, uh, faith watches to see what God will do. Henry Blackaby says, see what God is doing. And that's where you jump in. Maybe in your life as God is saving you and sanctifying you to see where he's setting the stage, you need to watch and see where God is already at work and then jump in where God is working in the midst of your life so that you can be sent to be a part of his story. Now the daughter of Pharaoh, verse five, came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now think about this. Think about God's sovereignty in the midst of this, God's timing in the midst of all of this. Like the Nile is not a calm river. I need you to like, the Nile is not St. John's River. The Nile is flowing at a violent pace. It is full of crocodiles. It is a dangerous place. The Nile is basically their god in Egypt. Their Nile is why Egypt is not desert. The Nile is what feeds, it's what makes Egypt a city. The very reason Egypt is this 
big empires because it has the fertile ground of being in the delta of the Nile. And this is a massive, powerful river. And so when she throws him in the Nile in this basket, I mean, this is not like some genius plan. I mean, there are very few ways this ends well. But in God's sovereignty, he times it all out right where he comes up near where the Pharaoh's daughter would be just at the right time and she's going down to bathe that as she opens it up, he cries in such a way that it brings pity in her heart. So she ends up taking him in that the sister is able to have favor of the Pharaoh's daughter when she talks to her and, and, and asks her what to do. And she's able to end up hiring the mom. The, the Nile was to be the place of condemnation, the, the instrument of condemnation for all the Jewish little boys. And yet it becomes the place of salvation, not only for Moses, but through Moses for the nation of Israel. The very thing meant to, to wipe out the nation of Israel is what God uses to save them in the house of Pharaoh. Do you see God's sovereignty in the midst of all of this? His power, his control, that he's never freaked out in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the darkest seasons of our life, the things that we don't understand, that God is actively at work in the midst of this, setting the stage for his story of redemption in our lives and through our lives for the sake of others. You can see that so well in this story. This is, this is where we start to really see the picture of the gospel. Jesus is condemned by the nation in power that wants to oppress the nation of God. Jesus is sent to the very instrument of condemnation through which all of us find salvation. Here's what I need you to understand about the cross. Jesus takes on the cross the weight of the sin of the world in what appears to be a victory for the world. This is what this is foreshadowing. The world can do whatever it wants to try to thwart God's plans, but we can't. God is a sovereign God who desires to bring salvation to you. And if if it's not for the tragic story of Jesus on the cross, we don't have any hope for salvation. And it's through that which it was meant to condemn that we get salvation. As a matter of fact, this has kind of been the history of the church. Every time the world has tried to crush the church, tried to persecute the church, we see the church expand even more. And so in the sovereignty of God, we see how God plays all of this out um, as we depend on God. But we got to understand salvation comes in a position of dependence. Why, why, would, why would mom put her baby in a basket and put him in the river. Like I said, this is not like a strategic plan. It's not like she knew, okay, he'll go down the river and then eventually he'll land at this place and he'll be safe with these people. She, she just had to be dependent on God. She had, she, I don't know if she's thinking through the story of Noah's Ark and she's thinking through that ark and I'm going to build him a little bitty Noah's Ark and I'm going to put him in. I don't know if she's thinking through that. I don't know what, what's going through her mind other than this has to be completely in God's hands. And listen, until we put ourselves in that position of dependence on God, completely dependent on Him, we won't see Him work mighty ways in our life. In each of our situations, we take the danger of trying to put it in our own hands. Harriet Tubman was 
so fascinating as a underground railroad conductor for several reasons. One, she was a woman. She was one of the only women to really lead the way she did. Two, she did it alone. Um, she, she would work alone. She didn't have teams. She, didn't, she would travel alone so often, and, and people would say, is it safe for you to do this alone? And she would always tell them, I'm never alone. I'm always with God. One guy, one abolitionist, Thomas Garrett, once said I, about Harriet Tubman, I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God than Harriet Tubman. She always had a dependence on God to lead her. In our lives, whatever you find yourself in, you've got to find a dependence on God instead of self-reliance. Moses ends up in self-reliance eventually, and it takes him down the wrong path. Hebrews chapter 11 says this about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. I love their boldness. But by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ. You catch that? The author of Hebrews is already connecting this to Christ, Jesus himself. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward by faith. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is Hebrews' quick synopsis of what Moses does in his life. That he grew up in Pharaoh's house, considered son of Pharaoh's daughter, but as he grew up, he saw the oppression of his people and he decided to take into his own hands. Um, He messed up. In self-reliance, he ended up killing a guy. But he ends up, God ends up using all these pieces of his story and, and he decides, but in that moment, he decides he would rather have the treasures of faithfulness than the treasures of Egypt. You have to understand, he was probably not positioned to be Pharaoh because he was but he was positioned to live a life of wealth and royalty for the rest of his life if he just would have played ball. But he decided that the treasure of faithfulness was greater than the treasure of this world. Church, we struggle with this, don't we? When we honestly, we struggle with this. This is what Matthew thirteen forty four says about the treasure of the kingdom of heaven. We 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 say we want to be faithful to God. We say we want to be dependent on Him. We say we want to serve Him, but sometimes all we offer to Him is our church attendance. And so God has called you to be sent into your workplace. He's called you to be sent into your family. He's called you to abandon. Listen, I stand no less than God has called you to abandon everything in your life for his purpose. This is what the word says consistently, that we are to abandon seeking the treasure of this world for seeking the treasures of heaven. Does this mean you can't work hard and get money? No. But it means you recognize it's not your money. It means you recognize those skills that you got in your training and your schooling and your education. That's not yours. It's not yours for you. That God is positioning you, sanctifying you, setting your stage for you to be used for his glory, just like Moses. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, it talks about how Moses benefited directly from the education of living in Pharaoh's house. That he got all the education of Egyptian royalty, and then he got the education of being a shepherd as well. But this story of Moses is just a shadow of the substance. 
as we've been talking about. Jesus is no stranger to suffering. When, when we are steadfast in our suffering, we share in suffering with Christ. I want to talk about setting the stage for um, God using you. I want to celebrate somebody else that can't be here today. Somebody you ought to get to know. You ought to make it uh, a part of your plan if you're a member of this church to go by her house sometime. A lady named Nellie Pavey. Those of you who know Nellie Pavey know that she is just a sweet and wonderful woman. She is a, her husband was a pastor, and so uh, she uh, has, been, has great stories of God's faithfulness in her life. But there's one story that I'd love. She, uh, she struggles physically with pain and, and with uh, mobility. And, uh, and one day I got word that she had fallen in the Walmart parking lot and hit her head in the parking lot and ended up in a rehab center um, here on Four Acre. And so I go to visit her. And when I go to visit her, man, she's smiling so big. I just thought, why are you smiling so big? You just landed and hit your head. Like, did you hit your head? Did that kind of hit your head? Like, and so I start talking to her. And here's what she tells me. Her, you can, she has a shared room and her roommate's not in there. But she tells me, I, I, I can't wait to tell you about my roommate. I said, all right. So she said, let me tell you why God did this. She said, I was praying. She said, I prayed every day, but particularly today, I was praying that God would, would allow me the opportunity to tell someone else about his love. That he would give me, even though I'm holed up in my house so much, God's bigger than that. God's miraculous. And so I'd go into Walmart to grab some things. And I'm going to tell you what, God had me slip and hit my head so I could be in this room to have this roommate that desperately needs to hear the love of Jesus Christ. And every day she consistently shared the gospel with her roommate there, elated that God would trip her and have her hit her head so that she could be sovereignly set up for that opportunity. When we're willing to submit our lives to the goodness of God's grace like that, I think in that dependence, God will do mighty things through us for his kingdom. But when we desire our own comfort and our own treasures, we miss out so often on what God has for us. We hoard things that only the world, could, the world, the world can offer, which are shadows of what God offers us. Because every part of your story is a part of what God is doing in you. God sanctifies Moses. God sets the stage for our sanctification in our suffering. The word sanctification, say sanctification. We started talking about it last week. This word really means set apart. The word holy means unique, set apart, ultimately set apart, ultimately unique. God has been sanctifying, setting apart Moses in this entire story, just like he has in yours. See, you think about the education that Moses got in leadership, the education that Moses got as a shepherd in the wilderness as he's out there for 40 years, the education, all this process, God is sanctifying him. Moses is not only saved, but he is set apart for a greater purpose. Exodus 2, 10 through 15, and then 24 through 25. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. And then as we said in Acts 7.22, it tells us that he was instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians. It says that, as a matter of fact, in Acts 7, in Acts 7 it tells us that he was mighty in word and deed. But here's the thing that you've got to catch in the shadow and the substance, is that Moses is called mighty in word and deed, and no other prophet is called mighty in word and deed until Jesus Christ himself. This was a shadow of who God would be. Moses as deliverer, Moses as redeemer, 
is a shadow of Jesus as deliverer, Jesus as redeemer. Moses from the slavery of the Egyptians, Jesus from the slavery of sin and the bondage of sin. Moses brings them to the promised land or brings them out of Egypt for a temporary reprieve, but Jesus brings us into eternal life of salvation. Verse 11, And one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses, who was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well, and God was setting the stage to be at work. He sat down by that well, and he encountered what would be his wife. And for the next 40 years, God would sanctify him in the wilderness, as he has done with so many in the Bible. You may feel like you're in the wilderness right now. Maybe... Maybe you're really struggling spiritually like you, you feel like you can't get traction spiritually. Maybe, maybe you feel like your marriage is hopeless. Maybe there's some other area and you're just in the wilderness. But God is sanctifying us in the wilderness to use us for his glory. Every part of his story was a key part of how God was going to use them. God has not forgotten his people. Every part of your story is how God is setting you up to use you. Harriet Tubman, you look at her story growing up, and God used so many parts of her story. She was kind of a rebellious child, and and so she received whippings a lot. And it developed a pain tolerance and a strength in her. She said she wanted to never let them see victory in her eyes, and so she intentionally never winced from the pain in front of her oppressors. And it developed a strength in her that she would need for all the things she had coming up. As a matter of fact, when she was a little girl, she would escape. She would run away for days at a time. She had already started developing this need to get away, and she would run away for days at a time and live in the woods by herself. Always the God was setting her up to know how to do this later. She got in so much trouble when she was working in the house that she got punished and sent to, to do muskrat traps out in the swamps. And while doing muskrat traps out in the swamps, she learned how to survive in the swamps, how to track, how to understand nature and all the things of being out in there as God continually set this stage for her and how to lead like she would one day. She even got to see modeling her mom of boldness when uh, the slave owner came after her brother one day and was going to sell her brother. And her mom stood up to the master in front of her house and said, you come into my house and touch my son and I will crack your head wide open. And the slave master turned around. She somehow found victory and she saw that strength and her mom modeled. It obviously passed down into her as she later was able to do so much. 2.24, I want you to see this. This is, this is an incredible part of the story. For 400 years, as God had said, they're in, the, they're, they're in suffering, servitude, and eventually bondage and oppression. 2.24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
it may seem like God is absent in your life right now, but God knows. God sees. Listen, the darkest thoughts in your mind right now, God knows and God sees. The biggest struggles in your life right now, God knows and God sees. When you think you're alone, when you think no one understands you, when you think no one can get what I've got ahead of me, no one understands what I've got, there's no way out, there's no hope, there's no way that this can be done. God knows and God sees. And when he sees the deepest, darkest thoughts of your mind and your heart, God knows, God sees, and God loves. God loves you, even though he knows everything about you. God loves you. You are never alone, and neither was Israel. God's knowing means God will redeem his people. When he says that he knows, he is initiating the redemption process. Jesus endured, Jesus knows what this suffering is. Jesus endured hostility from his friends and his family and his foes. Maybe you've got family problems. Maybe friends are coming against you. Jesus knows what that is like. Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows who bore grief. Jesus knows well the agony of betrayal by those closest to him. Jesus knows what it is to want a different plan than the stages that God has set as he is he cried out to God in the garden, God, if there is, I don't want to take this cup. If there is any other way than the way that, we have, that you have set before me, if there's any other way but thy will be done. God knows, Jesus knows what it's like to look before you and see hopelessness, but walk into it trusting God the Father. Jesus knows what it's like. Twice, twice in the Bible, we see Jesus cry out all night. I want you to pay attention to this. Twice in the Bible we see Jesus cry out all night before God. There are two times that Jesus spends all night praying and crying out before God. The first is before he chooses who his disciples are going to be, which includes who? Judas. The second is in the garden. And who comes and gets him? Judas. I'm not, I'm not trying to sell you a bill of goods that if you'll surrender to your life to Jesus, then your friends will be nice to you and your job, you'll get a promotion and your marriage will instantly be fixed and your health problems will be healed. I can't promise you all that. Sometimes when we cry out to God in the midst of his redemption story, there is the pain and the suffering as part of the redemption. In the movie Insanity of God that we watched together and we did the Insanity of Obedience study, we, we, we look at missionaries who lost their son when they were in Africa and, and they talk about they had to do his funeral on Easter weekend and And as they sit there, he remembers that as beautiful as the resurrection is, there is no resurrection without a crucifixion. Our suffering will almost always be what precedes God's sanctification in us and our redemption. And yet we so often, we've been taught to avoid suffering, to run away from it. I'm not telling you to run headlong into it. I'm telling you to cling to God in the midst of it. Know that he knows. Know that he sees. Know that he walks it with you. And not from an absent distance without knowing what it's like. That God knows what it's like to hurt the way you hurt. And because he knows, he is the only one that can bring you redemption when you find dependence on him. 
Jesus was wounded, spit on, beaten, and oppressed by the very world that he created. Following Jesus will lead to difficulty, but that difficulty will lead to your redemption and the redemption of others. Why? Why is it this way? You got to understand that we live in a broken world and holiness means different. Holiness is not compatible with a broken world. The more you are transformed into the image of Christ, the more you will be at odds with the world, but also the more his peace will rule your heart. So although it may seem like a storm outside, there is a calm that he brings to his children. God saves Moses to send him. In our salvation and sanctification, God is setting the stage for us to live sent. You have not been saved to sit. You have been saved to be sent. The stage has been set, and now where we pick up, God takes his rightful place at center stage in Exodus 3. He's been a, Moses has been a shepherd for 40 years. He's 80 years old now. 80 years old. And he's out as a shepherd, and he sees this bush burning on fire, but it's not being consumed. There's fire in this bush. Fire in, in, in the Bible, in this bush, shows us God's sovereignty over creation, shows his control over creation, that his fire could be in this bush, yet the bush not be burned. God's mercy and grace, God's mercy and grace is that his holy presence does not destroy the object of his revelation. The bush is the object of his revelation, his created object. We can be the object of God's revelation for others. But God's grace and mercy is that when his holiness comes through us, it doesn't destroy us. Every time we see fire in the Bible, it is, it is, it is related to God's truth. It is related to God's sovereignty. It is related to God's grace and mercy. That's why in our logo, there's, there's a fire in the middle of the Trinity symbol. That we see that it's God's presence, God's glory, God's holiness, God's purity, God's truth. Because that's what this world needs. It's truth. It doesn't need good feelings. It doesn't need fun sermons. It doesn't need social clubs. It doesn't need things that are fun. We can have the things that are fun, but what we need more than anything is God's truth, God's mercy. Through his truth, Exodus 3, 13 through 20, God starts to call Moses out to be for his people. And Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac has, has brought this promise. Well, I just want to summarize the rest of that. Basically, he says, go to the elders of Israel and tell them that promise from 400 years ago, that promise from further back than that, that promise from Abram to Abraham when that happened, that promise that passed on to Isaac, to Jacob, that promise is being fulfilled. I have come. I am. 
God has many names. Jehovah Jireh. He is our provider. He is our protector, our shield, our everything. He says, tell him that I am. And then God shows him in his mighty works. We'll look more into the mightiness of God in this. But what you need to understand is God is setting the stage for him to take center stage. He's setting the stage for his glory, not yours. And we've got to understand that. Because if it's for our glory, then it probably goes a little different, doesn't it? But when our life is set for the stage of God's glory, then it may not always be the way we want things to be, but it's the way that sets up for God's redemption. How has the Lord called you to live sent in this season of your life? As you look back on your story, on your sanctification, on your education, on your skills, on your personality, on your sphere of influence, on who your neighbors are, on what's going on in your life and what God has given you the ability to do, on on the access to people that God has given you, you can be a greater witness to your friends, family members, neighbors, and coworkers than I ever can be. I don't have the relationships you have. I don't have the access that you have. I don't have the neighbors that you have. I don't, I don't have the gifts that you have. God has set your story for you to be sent. Harriet Tubman fought her way into freedom and, and didn't settle just to find freedom for herself, but gave the next 18 years of her life so that 300 other slaves could be found, find freedom from bondage. In your life, what has God set up for you to make an impact for Him? In your neighborhood, how has God positioned you in your neighborhood to make an impact for Him? In the church, in the local church, what what has God called you to? What part of the body are you to play in the body of the local church? It's not it's not pew sitter. That one's not in here. You've been saved and sanctified to be sent. Specifically, think, don't think general. Think specifically in your life with your training, with your experience. I, I want to push to some of our older crowd. In Titus, there's a call in Titus for the older to pour into the younger. With your life experiences, with your wisdom, is God calling you maybe? to someone younger than you, to pour into them, to take them out for coffee, to just get to know them a little bit? Have you been through things in your life that would be beneficial for somebody else to be able to vent to you and go to you and think, man, here's what I've struggled with? Uh, Have there been things in your life? The answer to this is yes, there have been things in your life that have set the stage for you to be used by Jesus for the sake of others finding freedom from bondage. You, yes, you, every one of you. God has set the stage for you to be used by him. So what are some ways that you could do that? We've got mission trips coming up end of July to Orlando for just a couple of days. We've got one to Haiti in October. See Pastor Chris if you want to know about any of those things. We've got all sorts of needs in children's ministry and preschool ministry and small groups. Jump into one of those if that's what God's calling you to. There is someone younger in the faith than you in here that doesn't have anybody walking life with them. There is a mom in here that is is struggling with raising children and you've been through her struggles and you could walk that with her. There's someone in here that's had a miscarriage and 
recently and you've had miscarriages and you could walk that with them. There are people who have been through, that are going through hurts that you've been through. God has given you certain skills and abilities, not for you, not for your advancement, not for your pocketbook. He's given you those for him, for his glory. Maybe you're like Moses. If you were to skip ahead to chapter 4, one of my favorite quotes of Moses in 4.13, it says, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. I want to tell you, God is calling you. One last story, and then I'll, I'll, I'll close it. There's a guy named Buddy Holmes here. I love Buddy Holmes. Buddy has had a lot of struggles with his health, and uh, even several months ago, it looked pretty bad. Um, he's not here today because he's ministering to somebody else that's going through a worse time than him physically. And I got to talk to him about it a little bit this morning. Buddy's got a friend right now he's praying for named Jack. And, and I want to ask you to pray for Jack. If you, don't have a, if you don't have three names to put on your card, then put Jack on your card. See, Buddy has recognized that with the free time he has, as he's retired, that he's got a lot of friends from his life that aren't saved. And Buddy spends the majority of his time visiting his friends in hospitals and hospice centers and nursing homes, sharing the gospel with them faithfully, persistently, prayerfully. His atheist friend, Jack, has been an atheist his whole life. He's been sharing. Jack is pretty close to death. He's in his late 90s and he's probably going to die soon. The other day he told Buddy, I'm not there yet, but don't give up on me. Keep talking to me. Keep praying with me. So I'm just going to read these prayers. And as we read these prayers, we see a blank where you can put people, the person's name in. So I'm going to pray for Jack. That's how I'm going to close the service today. So I'm going to pray for Jack. And I want you to listen to these prayers that are on the back of this card. And as, as God is putting names on your heart, in our response time, I want you to come get one of these cards. And I want you to boldly pray for God to move in mighty ways. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would draw Jack to yourself. I pray that Jack would seek to know you. I pray that Jack will hear and believe the word of God for what it really is. I ask you, Lord, to prevent Satan from blinding Jack to the truth. Holy Spirit, I ask you to convict Jack of sin and the need for Christ's redemption. I ask that you send someone who will share the gospel with Jack. Lord, I also ask that you give me or Buddy the opportunity, the courage, and the right words to share with Jack. Lord, I pray that Jack will turn from sin and follow you. Lord, I pray that Jack will put all his trust in Christ. Lord, I pray that Jack will confess Christ as Lord, grow in faith, and bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.